from Brown Cow Studios in Montana, this is News Nerds, the news podcast. This week, we continue to cover the transfer of power in Afghanistan, where the Afghan government fell to the Taliban last Sunday. From inside Kabul, Ali Latifi speaks to us with a first-hand account of Kabul. Ali is a correspondent for Al Jazeera English. But first, we talk to Lynn O'Donnell. She left the country on the last commercial flight out of the Kabul airport last Sunday, along with Afghanistan's only Pulitzer Prize winner, Masood Hussani. She writes for the Foreign Policy magazine as a war correspondent. All of this coming up on episode 56 of News Nerds. I'm your host, Esper Graham. As the Taliban continue their reign over Afghanistan, one of the only ways that the rest of the world is connected to the country is through journalists on the ground. We'll hear from two of them in this episode. First is Lynn O'Donnell. She's an Australian journalist who covers Afghanistan, and she left the country last Sunday. Lynn O'Donnell is a journalist and war correspondent who writes for Foreign Policy Magazine. She joins us now. Welcome to the program. Thanks a lot for having me. Are you still in Afghanistan? No, I'm not. I left uh, Kabul on the last commercial flight out of the country on uh, Sunday morning, the 15th of August. So you worked with Pulitzer, you still work with Pulitzer Prize winning photographer Masood Hussani. So what is it like for him to leave Afghanistan because his family is there? Well, that's the point, really. He's, um, I've left friends and colleagues and he's left his family behind and it's very difficult for him. He's looking at probably never being able to go back to his home and his homeland. The possibility of never seeing his family members again, especially his father, who is quite elderly and frail, Um, but even his brothers and sisters, he doesn't know when or if he will see them again. He certainly doesn't know when he'll see any of his friends again. So it's, you know, he's nearly 40 and he's facing starting his life from scratch with just the stuff that he, carried out of his country it's it's a, an incredibly devastating and heartbreaking situation that he is in and also very stressful because he's worried about his family at home and of course he's not the only person in this situation but he's been a close friend and colleague of mine for more than 10 years and we left together on the plane and we're staying in the same um, house in a small town in Holland. We're very, we feel very lucky to be here. And, you know, I'm, we're both working very hard, doing lots of interviews like this, Ezra, and people want to hear our stories. But um, it, it's really just a way of delaying the fact that we will have to process what we've been through when he has a hell of a lot more to process than most people ever should. So you mentioned that he may never be able to go back. Why is that? Well, he's very high profile. He's um, a Pulitzer Prize winning photographer. He's Afghanistan's only Pulitzer winner. And he has been assiduously critical of the Taliban 
and of the government that just fell because it was incredibly corrupt and inept. And the stories that we have done together just in the last three months have seen us being threatened. And um, whenever I sat in the passenger seat of his car while we were driving around uh, Kabul, um, I had to look at bullet holes in the upholstery and the dashboard of his car because he was ambushed a couple of years ago while driving home at uh, twilight in Kabul and nearly killed. And it's a daily reminder to him as well that he is, he's under threat. And if he was still in Kabul, he would be one of the people that the Taliban would be hunting down now to kill because that's what they do and that's what they're doing. And so, you know, I'm a foreigner, I'm not an Afghan person, and so um, I could leave at any time and most people in the country can't. And Masood was lucky that he could, at, at the right time, get out and get out with his life. So you left on Sunday. So the government has fallen and... The president has fled. The airport is uh, calming down, but it is it's still chaotic there with Taliban ch checkpoints. So describe what was happening at that point. Well, we had tickets on a flight and uh, we knew that things were going pear-shaped. Um, over the preceding few days, there had been a lot of signs, growing signs, bigger and bigger signs that the government was imploding. And uh, we had tickets out on the Sunday morning, as I said. I had a friend who um, came over. He worked at a very senior security level for the, um, the government and in the presidential palace. And he came over to say goodbye. And he... When I opened the door, he had his phone to his ear. He was on a phone call. And he came in and he walked around in circles and he paced up and down. And when he'd finished his phone call, he said, everyone's gone. The palace is empty. Everyone had left. And on Sunday morning, we left, Masood and I left for the airport at around about 5, 5.30. And he lives on the um, eastern side of the city. And he said that he had a sleepless night because he was listening to uh, gunfire and skirmishes, firefights about 20, 25 kilometres away, maybe 15 miles away from his home. And when he drove to my place, he said that there was no security. Kabul is a very uh, militarised city. It's got a, a lot of, um, had a lot of uh, uniformed uh, army and police uh, security checkpoints. They called it the Ring of Steel. And by early Sunday morning, uh, the Ring of Steel had disappeared. When we drove to the airport, it was the same story. There was no security. Everything had gone. Uh, so we knew uh, we were getting out at the right time. We didn't know it would be, you know, just a few hours later. But once the security, once the, once the palace, the presidential office is empty and security um, has disappeared. Yeah, you know that it's pretty much all over. Yeah, so we had a five hour flight. We flew from Kabul to Istanbul in Turkey and we were transferring there to Amsterdam. We're now in Holland. And when we touched down in Istanbul, uh, we checked the news and we saw that uh, the Taliban had indeed taken over Kabul and it was all over and the president was missing. 
what were the civilians saying at that point? I think people knew in their bones, you know. Um, Masood and I went to um, a city called Herat a week or so earlier. And Herat is a big, old, important city. And it's the capital of a province called Herat that borders Iran. And we went there to cover the Taliban um, attempt to take over the capital city, Herat. And uh, we spent time on the front lines with a warlord called Ishmael Khan and his people, his militia, personal army, really, were fighting alongside um, armed men from the National Security Directorate, which is the, was the um, Afghan intelligence service. And we had intended to stay just two days, but we ended up staying five days because we couldn't get out. The day that we wanted to leave, the Taliban took control of the airport road. When we landed, when we arrived, they had control of the airport road. So we had to hang out at the airport for a few hours to wait for that situation to change. And then we went into Herat City. On the, that was on a Monday. On the Wednesday, when we wanted to leave, the Taliban had uh, fired rockets at the airport. The airport closed, they took control of the road. So we waited until the next day and then we couldn't get tickets because people started to want to leave Herat. We got tickets on all three scheduled flights on the Friday just to make sure that we got out of there. And we did. And we decided before we got out that when we got back to Kabul, we would buy tickets to leave the country because we could see that if Herat was going to fall, Kabul wouldn't be too far behind it. Um, and we had um, noticed the pattern of the, the, um, the Taliban strategy and it just made sense. So when we got back to Kabul, we, we booked our flights, um, got our tickets and within days, you know, there were only like 10 people lined up buying tickets the day that we were there. A couple of days later, maybe four, three or four days later, Masood went back to the airlines ticket office was with a friend of ours who needed to leave and he said there were about a thousand people there trying to buy tickets. So there was very much, once Herat fell, uh, it was very clear to everybody and we were just lucky in our timing that we saw that Herat was going to fall and we got our tickets and then people saw that it had fell and pretty soon there were no tickets to be had. Yeah, lucky. So when we got to Istanbul and we got back onto social media, turned our phones on and plugged back into the world as you do, there was just panic. It was terrible. Um, that you know there was gunfire. There was gunfire at the airport. That's why it closed. The Taliban stormed the airport, um, and so I could just you know we were so lucky. We were just going out on a plane, you know lining up, checking in like you do when you get on a plane and so is everybody else. Um, but then within a couple of hours, it was all, you know, like a, like a bad movie. Mm, terrible. So you've been describing what was happening there and the collapse of the government. So what were the main reasons, uh, in your opinion, for this collapse? Um, Ashraf Ghani, who was the president until Sunday, is an extremely arrogant, hubristic, inept, corrupt man. He surrounded himself with a cabal of yes-men, 
money that was meant to go to the armed forces was siphoned off and stolen. I went to front lines where fighting policemen and soldiers did not have food, let alone uh, weapons, ammunition. They had to buy their own uniforms. They didn't have any support. When they called for air support, it didn't come because it wasn't there. Ashraf Ghani uh, would not allow people to push back. So anyone who knew anything more than him was quickly removed from their position. And that included people who were uh, generals in the army, uh, proper fighting men, people with experience fighting the Taliban, ministers of defense, ministers of interior. And so there was no consistency in leadership and therefore no strategy. Um, an incredibly unpopular man, nobody wanted to uh, fight for him or support him. Wherever Masood and I went across the country, would, we would ask people, did they support him? Uniformly, they said no. Uh, so corruption, ineptitude, lack of strategy, utter lack of leadership. Um, what else can I tell you? The Taliban have been uh, making some promises and saying that they will change. From what you've heard and what you've seen, are they keeping those promises? Oh, no. Um, there is no question that they will keep any promises. They're liars. They've lied all along. They are killers, uh, murderers, misogynists. They run the biggest drugs um, producing and trafficking cartel in the world. They make billion dollars out of um, heroin producing and trafficking, and they are uh, branching out into methamphetamine. So, for instance, a... Um, a kilogram of made in Afghanistan meth on the streets of Australia is worth 700,000 US dollars, which is about double what a kilogram of Afghan heroin is worth in Australia. It's much cheaper and easier and less labor intensive to produce. Um, so they're moving into that. They also control and exploit the minerals and mining sector of Afghanistan uh, and they sell uh, that stuff illegally all over the world as well. So uh, they made promises in the deal that they did with former US President Donald Trump um, that they already, well, that they never even, it wasn't a matter of breaking them, they never stuck to them. They said that they would break ties with Al-Qaeda, but they haven't. Uh, they said that they would not attack US forces, and they did. Uh, they said on Sunday on the outskirts of the capital that they would not enter Kabul, they have. They've said that they will um, respect women's rights, but they don't. Um, so, you know, what's basically happening is that a, a, a a, a criminal gang of drug dealers are taking over one of the most geographically important countries in the world, and it's being allowed to happen. Leaders around the world have uh, come, come out, and uh, the president here in the United States has said that he stands by his word. Other leaders around the world have said different things. Um, so what do you think of those reactions from top government officials around the world? Spineless. I think they're being spineless and dishonest and dishonorable. Um, the chief of the British Army, uh, General Sinek Carter, said the other day the Taliban had become reasonable. They'd changed. They haven't. He's certainly not reading my, my journalism and my reporting. He's not looking at Masood's photos. He's not paying any attention. He should know that the heroin on the streets of Britain is produced in Afghanistan and sold 
by the Taliban. So this hubristic denial of reality is putting the whole world in danger because what is happening is the creation once more of ungoverned spaces where the Taliban and Al-Qaeda and ISIS and the Haqqani network and all the other little wizards they've got around them will be able to plot and plan attacks on the West because that's what they do. And so for people like President Biden, who I was, you know, I really welcomed him into office after, after President Trump, who I thought was ignorant and stupid um, in doing this deal. And I understood where he was coming from when he decided that he would stick to the deal because Biden is, he has a history of not, he's not in favour of big military footprints abroad. So there was no surprise in his decision, but certainly um, a lot of disappointment in the way this decision was um, carried out. For the rest of them, yeah, they're all just spineless. Yeah. They don't seem to be able to see Afghan people as human beings that they can look in the eye and see themselves in. And that's their shame. What do you think will happen in Kabul in the coming days? I think the situation will get worse. I think we'll see a, a much worse situation at the airport. Um, at the moment, it's the um, it's uh, the twentieth. It's the night of the twentieth of August in Kabul, and for five days, people have been camped at the airport, desperate to get out. There are evacuation flights leaving with a handful of people on them because there is no coordination at the gates of the airport that um, will enable people to go in in an orderly fashion and take flights that they are qualified to take. I think that the Taliban, they've started going door to door looking for their critics and their enemies. I think they will start, well, they'll start escalating uh, disappearances and executions. At the moment, we're only seeing Afghanistan through Kabul. The rest of the country has gone largely gone dark because there's no journalists anywhere. A lot of the journalists working in the provinces had already come to Kabul for their safety and now they're in hiding. Afghanistan's going dark. So what we will see is what we are able to see, which is more chaos and increasing misery and a, an escalating uh, humanitarian crisis. And what we won't see will be terror. It's a reign of terror, and that's what will be hidden. Thank you so much for joining us today and talking about the escalating situation in Kabul. Oh, thank you for having me, Ezra, and best of luck to you. to Ali Latifi. He's still inside of Kabul. He's a reporter for Al Jazeera English. Ali Latifi is a journalist based in Kabul. He joins us from Kabul. Welcome to the program. Thank you. So what does the city look like at this moment? The city outwardly seems 
okay. Things are still calm, you know. People are still going about their business as much as they can. There are people on the streets and stores and other businesses are slowly reopening. But, you know, we have to remember that this is all on the outside. This is just what we see on the streets and what we experience in our own homes. Um, there are reports of intimidation and house searches, abuses and violence by the Taliban, but because so many of them happen behind closed doors or because they can't be visually documented in a way, it's very hard to substantiate those. It's not to say that they're not true. It's just that for us, we can really only attest to what we see and experience ourselves. And, you know, it's been a week since the Taliban took over and the city, you know, outside still seems relatively calm. So in 1996, the Taliban seized Kabul and there's been, people have been talking about 1996 uh, and mm-hmm. kind of comparing it to now. So, like, what was happening in 1996? So, in 1996, when the Taliban seized Kabul, it was a different city. It was just coming out of a civil war, which is what the Taliban said they would end, which itself came at the end of a Soviet occupation and the jihad against communist rule and, and Soviet occupation. So, it was a very different city then. The, the, the front lines of the war, especially the civil war, was here in the city of Kabul. So Kabul was, you know, in rubble, it was destroyed. Uh, you know, there were different jihadi factions fighting against each other after they had defeated the Soviet Union and basically raining rockets on the city of Kabul and their forces were accused of ethnicizing and ghettoizing the city and uh, abuse and and violence against people, including rape, physical attacks, and theft of property. So there was a lot of fear and anger in the city, which is what the Taliban said they would come and deliver the people from. And initially, a large number of people were happy with that. They they were okay with that. They said, this is fine. As long as you deliver us from these rockets and these warlords, we're okay and they and they were seen you know as triumphant as heroes who would deliver them from this horrible state and in the beginning you know they said because for instance there were accusations of rape and and harassment of women they said okay all women must wear a chodari or what in the in the western media is called the burqa right to like fully cover their bodies and only go out with a male companion if they have to and only female doctors should work and girls shouldn't go to school. And initially they said that this is just until things get back in order and eventually things will be okay. Uh, Like they'll go back to normal, but that never happened in the five years they ruled Afghanistan. And then they also greatly inhibited uh, on the lives of all people, you know, men and women, you know, men were expected to dress a certain way to have a certain type of beard, you know, if they were caught outside during prayer time, they would either be taken to the masjid to pray, or even if they had just finished the prayer, or, you know, they would be beaten and abused um, for, for, for not going to pray, or for going at the wrong time, or wearing the wrong clothes, or not having the right kind of beard, or for film and television and music and radio were banned. The only things you could watch 
were or listened to were state media, which was all just religious media anyway, and they never eased up on any of that. So the, these are the kinds of things people are afraid of happening again in 2021. Journalists in Kawa are doing some amazing work reporting from inside the city, but yes. uh, there's been some uh, there's been some fear among journalists that the Taliban will uh, will try to silence the reporting. So at this point, uh, mm-hmm. are journalists being treated with respect? So the Taliban will say yes. They, and in fact, they put out a statement today that they're creating a body, a commission to deal specifically with media and journalist issues. So we've seen a lot of journalists flee ahead of time, feeling that, you know, they won't be allowed to work. Uh, as they wish. We've seen reports of abuse against journalists. There was a report that the family of a reporter for Deutsche Welle, the German media outlet, was killed in Kabul, allegedly by the Taliban. So this is a real issue. And I mean, there are journalists operating, of course, like TV stations are still operating, journalists are still going out. Uh, the news is still being written and, and produced and broadcast. But there is a fear that, you know, there, there could be a widespread crackdown on the media, especially the news. And I'm sure that a lot of people are very cautious about what they say and what they print or, or what they broadcast, you know, that, that I'm sure that there's some very you know, that th- there's definitely some self-censorship going on. And, and because right now we don't know, you know, the reports are so, on the one hand, you know, the Taliban will say, no, we respect the media, we'll let them broadcast and write whatever they want. And then on the other, you hear reports, you know, that, that, that journalists are being targeted, that, that they're being harassed, uh, that they're not being allowed to do their job. So until this is actually sorted out and until you know people can feel safe enough it's not to say that people weren't harassed and abused or even killed for for being journalists in the previous government but now it's it's so much more up in the air because there isn't an official government an official system and people don't really know who they would go to to lodge a complaint anyways so the U.S. withdrew its all its troops when President Biden uh, was elected, and now they're sending uh, we're sending uh, thousands more back just to secure the airport. Uh, mm-hmm. So, what do you think of that withdrawal of of the troops, and like what do other other people in Kabul think of that? So, people in Afghanistan in general. I mean, I've been back here for the last. 10 years, basically. And in that time, people around the country, not just in the city of Kabul, a lot of them were fed up with the U.S. presence from a long time ago. You know, they referred to the drone strikes, the night, which, which Obama, you know, really catapulted, uh, the night raids, the um, airstrike, you know, cases like Robert Bales, the U.S. soldier who went into a village and the province of Kandahar and, and, you know, massacred um, men and women and children in the middle of the night uh, um, and who was not allowed to be tried here. They referred to abuses by CIA-backed forces, all of these things. 
So for a long time, you know, people were fed up with the U.S. presence anyway. And I would say that the majority of the Afghan people didn't mind them leaving. But the, the, the issue was that, you know, Joe Biden left without any conditions. He didn't put any conditions on the former government to, you know, take peace talks seriously, which were going on in Doha between the, ta the Taliban and the government. He didn't, you know, try and tell them to curb corruption, uh, which is a huge problem over the last 20 years in this country. And he also didn't tell the Taliban to take the peace talk seriously or to put any kind of pressure on them to enact some sort of a ceasefire. And then on top of that, if you look at his speeches over the last few months, it's gotten more hostile, more disdainful, more, some would say disrespectful of the country in tone. And, and the thing is, if, if you look back at what he said about this country ever since he was vice president for Obama, and even during the, the last few elections that he ran in, he's always spoken very negatively of this war. And, you know, the thing that everyone always says is like, you know, you don't have to like this war. Believe me, the majority of the people in this country don't like this war. But that's very different from not liking the people or the country. Because if you look at what's going on in the airport, there's three layers of security. So on the outside, it's the Taliban who, you know, shoot into the air and have plastic pipes and things like that to try and disperse crowds. And then the next layer is, you know, intelli Avalon intelligence forces. And then the final layer is U.S. troops. And all of them have been accused of using hostile tactics to disperse crowds, hostile and violent tactics. You know, the U.S. has used tear gas. They've been accused of, of, of killing people in the airport. Even, even when people make it into the airport and they make it into these sort of like transition camps, in there, there's no, there's not proper food, there's not proper water. No one is given, you know, real information as to if they will leave, when they will leave, how they will leave. So you have families who are stuck in these camps for hours, if not days, you know, without proper food, without proper water, and, and no real answers. So this whole sort of system has been a mess and ill-prepared and you know, people who are there say that, that, that the U.S., I think it's mainly Marines, are very hostile towards the people. You know, that they're, they're very hostile and, and rough and, and abrasive, uh, you know, with these people who are trying to flee with their lives. You know, the, these are just people, you know, afraid of what's going on here and hoping that they can find a way out. So let's turn to the airport now. The Taliban have said that all American citizens can pass through their checkpoints at the airport. And President yeah. Biden in a speech said that this is continuing when a journalist asked him that what, from what you're seeing and what you're hearing, is this true that the Taliban mm -hmm. are uh, keeping their end of the deal and letting Americans pass? I think so, but the problem is that the whole the whole situation was so mismanaged and there are so many crowds outside the airport now that trying to control that is extremely difficult 
So I know people who are U.S. citizens who were on these evacuation lists who basically said, we're not leaving until there are commercial flights because the situation at the airport is too dicey. It, it's just like, how would I even get there? What would I do? And, and so it's the, the, the whole problem is just that even if the Taliban let you through is that that, that from my understanding, like I've only ever seen at this point what's going on on the outside, on the roundabout that leads to the airport, you know, the main uh, civilian entrance to the airport. It's just crowds of people trying to rush towards the, the entrance of the airport and then the Taliban shooting in the air to disperse them. And then there are also like looters and thieves around, you know, taking advantage of vulnerable people. You know, and, and the thing is also, it's not just about, you know, obviously to him, he cares about U.S. citizens. But the other thing is, is that over the last few months, the U.S., the U.K., Canada, Germany, France, you know, created this hope for people with these visas that they were offering to linguists who worked with the different militaries, allegedly to women under risk and journalists and, and rights workers and people like that. But those, those systems are entirely nebulous and opaque and buried in paperwork and can take forever. And so a lot of people are just hoping that they can just show up and somehow, you know, be put on a plane and, and, then, and then allowed to seek asylum somewhere. So it, it's, yes, obviously the U.S. citizens are his first concern, but they're not the most at risk. You know, the most at risk are these people who feel scared to be here, who feel stranded here, who are looking for a way out. And, you know, the people charged with dealing with them, you know, these Marines and these British forces are known to be very hostile and, and gruff and abrasive and violent with them. So it's it's not, I mean, we've seen, we will, you know, there, there's videos online of like guys hanging on to the airplane tires, you know, this, this U.S military plane as it's taking off and then you know shortly after takeoff they plummet to their deaths so it, it's much more than just at this point trying to get u.s citizens out because like how many u.s citizens you know are really here and a lot got out much earlier so for him you know th this these images will last throughout his legacy Right. I've been talking to other journalists, one who was actually, who is in Kabul, like you, and he's said that there are thousands of people, you know, store, uh, around the, the airport. Um, it's true. Right. So, so how were the Taliban treating those Afghans um, who assisted the U.S. government in the war? I've seen lots of reports from different news organizations um, who have been talking to these people and they've been showing um, the reporters their their uh, their paperwork and the proof that they worked for the U.S. government, but they say that the Taliban have been lying to them about there not being any flights out or not there not being any room, uh, so they just can't get out of the the city. Um, I don't think it's just a Taliban issue. I think it's an overall issue because. You know, as I said, it's only the first entry point is, is trying to get past the Taliban. And in the beginning, there really weren't flights. It's true, the airport was damaged, you know, last Sunday evening when thousands of people stormed through it trying to get out the night the president fled and the Taliban, you know, started to enter the city. 
Um, so it's not necessarily that the Taliban are lying to them. It's that the Taliban don't know how to do these things, right? They don't know how to properly crowd control. And, you know, there's, there's waves of people coming and there's no one really there to sort of sort through this to to because that's not their responsibility their responsibility is not to know who has you know real paperwork and who who doesn't because they can't verify that and also you know so many people have been left behind because of sort of like paperwork and, and logistical issues so i think it's an all-around problem you know that that there's just it's just been completely mismanaged from top to bottom and and the Taliban are only the first first layer of security you could say outside the airport you know that that's only the first layer they have to deal with then then once they get inside there's the hostility of of um you know the the US marines and then there's the fact that you know people are left in these camps for you don't know how long and then those camps and then those people are flown out to Qatar and then like in Qatar it's like these resettlement camps with where the conditions are apparently not much better than than the refugee camps in Greece and in Turkey so it's um it's a long you know it starts with the Taliban but it keeps going higher and higher and into all of these different layers right um, yeah, and I agree with you because, um, I mean, like reporting from like CNN's Clarissa Ward, she says like that some people are being left behind because they don't have the correct paperwork that might have been. It's true. A lot of people, not, not yeah. some people, a lot yeah. of people. Okay. Okay. So, um, you know, they, they've, there's also been like reports of the, of, uh, the people, you know, burning people's passports. Like, is that true? Like, is, is this, are these uh the thing is it's so hard to 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 know because access to that area is very difficult a and b it's um very dangerous right because as i said like there's live you know aerial shooting like we we were only there a couple days ago for like 40 minutes and we couldn't even go up to the roundabout because we were waiting for some Talib commander to see, you know, if he would let us get closer. He was allegedly in a meeting, so we just basically had to park and stand outside the wedding hall across from the airport. And the entire time, they were just aerial shooting, trying to disperse the crowds. So there's, it's just so much disorder, you know, and, and on every level. Um, and, and it's very difficult to get solid reporting out of there. Yeah, that seems very hard. And I can't, I mean, I can't believe that these reporters have been going out there like, like you and doing all this great reporting well, when their lives are at stake. Uh, and that brings us into our last question. So yeah. do you think that you'll like stay, you'll stay in the country and continue to report for, for um, Al Jazeera? I'll stay as long as I can. I mean, I always say I was forced out once by war when I was little, and this is my country, and I don't want to leave, and I don't want to be forced to leave. I mean, it's, it's a possibility that I, that, that I may have to leave at some point, but I hope I don't have to. I, I hope that, you know, 
things can calm down or that I can find a way to, you know, continue to work here for as long as possible. Um, so, you know, I mean, like I have a U.S. passport. I haven't left yet and I could leave, you know, but so far, so far I haven't. We, we'll see what happens. I mean, like I said, hopefully, hopefully I don't have to. Well, Ali Latifi, thank you for talking to us. You're welcome. That's it for this week's episode of News Nerds. On this week's episode, I was your host. I'm Ezra Graham. You can find us on the web at newsnerdspodcast.com. There you can listen to past episodes of News Nerds, Cow Pies, and other News Nerds extras. You can also listen to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. While you're there, please subscribe to the podcast. And while you're on Apple Podcasts, please leave us a review. It really helps our ratings. Another way to listen is by listening on Thursdays at 5.30 p.m. Mountain Time on KGVM, community radio for the Gallatin Valley. If you are not in the Gallatin Valley area, go to KGVM's website, kgvm.org, to listen on their live stream. Until next week, bye-bye.